Well, an attention-grabbing headline in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reads, My cousin was killed by a car bomb in Milwaukee. A mob boss was the top suspect. Now I'm looking for answers. That grabs your attention. No doubt about it. And it is a story that gets into the organized crime world of Milwaukee, the mafia world of Milwaukee, from really going back to the 60s, but more prominently in the 70s and even into the 80s. It's an investigative piece in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel that everyone is buzzing about. If you have read it, that's for sure. It's a long one, though. You've got to grab a cup of coffee and, and sit down for this one. Augie Palmazano is the man who was killed by a car bomb in Milwaukee. Augie's cousin is Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reporter Mary Spacuza. Mary, this is incredible. This story is captivating. I'm sure for you it was also trying to try and find out answers. I guess one of my big questions is, why don't we have the answers surrounding your cousin's death from something that happened decades ago? Thanks so much for having me on. I think there's always been a lot of fear and a lot of silence around organized crime, certainly in the Sicilian community where I grew up. And I think people were afraid. I think people knew more and probably some people still do know more than they let on than they wanted to tell uh, the police or FBI and didn't want anything bad to happen to them or their families. Did you ever feel nervous while you were on your search for these answers? Yes. At times, yes. How so? Who were you talking to? Or was it even before you talked to somebody where you thought, oh, gosh, do I go here? But I want to because you wanted to find out who killed him. I think that's probably what took me so long, honestly, to do the story is that, um, you know, Augie was killed when I was a very young girl. I was four. Um, My family didn't want to talk about it. Uh, It would only come up when my dad would He was clearly very uncomfortable with it and would say things like, don't fall in with the wrong crowd. You know what happened to Cousin Augie. Don't talk back to the wrong person. You know what happened to Cousin Augie. And it was like, no, I don't know what happened to Cousin Augie because you won't talk about it. And it's funny that as a journalist, I get paid to ask questions, but that was the one question I really could never ask or never get answers to. So who was Augie Palmazano? What did he do in Milwaukee? How did it become him? Part of my story actually was to try to find out a little bit more about him because my family wouldn't talk about him. And I had no idea, like, was he some terrible person? Was he this villain? And it was actually, you know, and I didn't know what I would find out from my reporting. So it was actually very kind of a relief for me to hear really heartwarming stories about who he was from everything from some of the FBI agents who investigated him said you know, I, I was trying to put him in prison, but he was a really nice guy and he was gambling, but like he wasn't doing anything that like that's basically kind of legal now. So it wasn't at the time it was a big deal. But now like gambling on college sports, gambling on professional sports, uh, gambling on horses, it it doesn't seem probably as scandalous as it did. in the It's 70s. such a different world now. But what were the thoughts back then? Who did people think Augie was or, or might have been? There were a lot of rumors about him and at going through the clips, going through what um, some of the uh, anonymous sources in the paper were quoted at the time. He was described as a substantial figure in organized crime. He was described as a potential informant or a, a rat or a snitch or whatever the term that people would use. And uh, I found him to be none of those things, which was I, I was, you know, I was thinking actually as I was reporting, what will I do if I find out my cousin was a killer or was a hitman or something right. horrible? And I was thinking like, 
do I spike the story if it gets really bad? But I, I was it was a relief to hear really heartwarming stories about him. Everything from after a little boy's father died and surprising him with a Christmas tree or uh, the procession from the funeral home tour the, to the cemetery apparently like spread throughout town because he was just a very loved person. Take us back to and for people who haven't read the story just yet to how he was killed, because this was a car bomb. And one of the other things, too, I mean, great pictures also with this story as well at the Juno Village Garden Apartments, which are still around. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's amazing to talk to people who, uh, you know, when I start telling them about the story and they say, wait, you're telling me this wasn't in Sicily. I'm like, no, this was in Milwaukee. And the building is still there. I, I did hear it like moved the foundation of the building and they had to have a city engineer people come and look at it. But um, I mean, there were several detectives told me that Milwaukee, in a sense, got very lucky that day. Obviously, Augie was murdered. But had that bomb gone off um, outside that it could have spread several city blocks, it could have been very devastating. And people could have been in that garage, too. So not that Augie deserved to be killed or was not an innocent victim. He certainly did not um, deserve what happened to him. But, it, I mean, more people could have easily been killed. Mary Spacuza is a Milwaukee Journal Sentinel writer. She's the cousin of Augie Palmazana, who was killed June 30th, 1978, a car bomb in his 1977 Mercury Marquis at Juno Village Towers. There are people you spoke to, Mary, to, to try and figure out the details of this story, who were not willing to give you their name. They did not want their name published in this story. It is 2024. Out of fear for their safety in 2024, they were not willing to give you their name to be published. Why do you think that is the case? I think there is a fear hangover in a way that, um, especially for some of the people who were old enough to remember when people were being killed, blown up, shot to death in alleys, um, that that was very real for them. But I also think that, um, you know, you want to protect your family. And so there were people who said, I I think I would be okay, but, you know, I have to look out for my kids and grandkids. And it's just um, the risk isn't worth it to me. And I I get that you want to, you know, it's like you think you should be fine. But if you've got a bunch of grandkids that you want to protect, that makes sense, too. What did it take for you personally to write this story? Many sleepless nights. um, A lot of time. I... A lot of uh, reading, combing through. I have stacks and stacks of FBI reports, police reports. Um, I kind of have a fact-checking room in the office right now that is just like mounds and mounds of reports. Um, Thousands of pages, a lot of coffee, and probably some gray hairs and sleepless nights. So it was a a tough one for me. This is, I've never um, had this hard of a time reporting a story before. And when did it start, Mary? When did you first decide that you wanted to do this? I I kind of had been thinking about it for a while, um, but I remember in, it was actually in 2019 when I thought, gosh, if it's kind of now or never, you know, like you, you think about it and then there's the fear and the, gosh, can I do this and what will my family think? But um, at a certain point, like some of the people who are alive to tell these stories might not be alive for that much longer. And so I kind of thought like, I don't start asking questions soon and getting these people on on tape and recording and um, like these stories are going to be lost forever. So it just felt like if I'm not going to do it now. I'm never going to do it. And then 2020 happened. So it kind of had to get, um, you know, 
set aside for a while, but I came back to it. Was it your aunt who most recently you, you started asking questions to? And what did she initially say when you said, what happened to Cousin Augie? She said, why do you want to talk about that? And that was it. And uh, if anybody knew my aunt, she was kind of the matriarch of the family. And some uh, a friend of mine said, well, did you push her and try to get her to answer? And I was like, oh, you don't know my <laughs> if you've never had a Sicilian aunt, because <laughs> I was not messing around with that. <laughs> so did she open up? No. Ever. No, no, she didn't. Never. So some of the other people who, who you talked to, and I mean, you had to go through tons of records. W- what was it like? I know you went to the old journal building to actually go down into the archives there. They call that the morgue, right? Yeah, the morgue. So, so what was it like when you went down there and you were looking for basically anything on Cousin Augie and you find envelopes and then it's marked or stamped dead? I can't imagine what it was like to see that. Yeah, I think, um, it, and the archives have moved as our building has moved, but thankfully they're still intact. I I would, um, you know, I would be so sad if anything had happened to them. And l- sure. luckily they, they preserved them. Um, it was kind of chilling to look through them and look at, um, you know, man killed by car bomb. And some of the early coverage was just very jarring to me, I guess. And even though I didn't know him, he was still a relative and, some of the, you know, obviously it was a very devastating bomb, and I tried to not get into some of the gruesomeness in the article and tried to describe more the damage to the building than the damage to him. Um, but, yeah, it, it's it's troubling. Mary, you want to hang on for a second. I want to bring you back uh, after a quick break, and, and I want to ask you about what you learned about Milwaukee and the organized crime ring, right? This is not New York, this is not Chicago, but Milwaukee was certainly a player. Yes. I want to ask you about that coming up. Mary Spacuza, our guest in studio. More after this on WTMJ. Continuing our discussion with Mary Spacuza of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Mary is the cousin of Augie Palmazano, who was killed June 30th, 1978. Augie ran a produce business. He also attended bar. He did not have many nights full of sleep. He was always up and moving and doing things. And his connection to organized crime is uh, what we've kind of uncovered through reading this story that Mary so articulately pieced out of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Mary, I want you to describe what you learned about the organized crime scene in Milwaukee. New York, Chicago, obviously it's very well documented. We've seen a lot of movies, but Milwaukee certainly had a, a presence in that world. It did. Yeah, it was significant enough that they sent Joe Pistone, Donnie Brasco here to help infiltrate the crime family. And uh, he wrote and talked uh, to me actually about the reaction when a New York mobster a lefty heard Milwaukee and heard that somebody was trying to get into vending machines in Milwaukee. And the reaction was, they're crazy out there. They'll blow you up. Tell them to get out of there. So even like nationally among organized crime figures, Milwaukee was seen as a ruthless place. These stories, as you had to dig into them, what were police thinking or when you asked for those open record requests? I mean, that's something that journalists do often. But were they like, what the heck is she doing? Why is she asking about this from decades ago? I, I told them why. I tried to be pretty transparent and said, you know, I'm looking into my cousin's murder and I'm filing these records requests. But they are, since anyone can file a records request, um, they often don't need a lot of it. They probably figured out what I was doing because then I asked for some related, um, also some related records requests of other unsolved murders that were in a similar pattern. So they probably figured it out. But mainly it was just, that's a lot of pages and that's going to take us some time. And 
um, you know, paying for the copies and things like that. <laughs> you talked about people who didn't not want to talk, but once you really got your teeth into this story, were there some people who came out and said, I hear you're asking some questions. I'd like to talk to you or maybe not even on the record, but hey, I've, I've got a little something you should know. Yeah, certainly. I was I, I was very surprised and encouraged by um, some of the retired detectives, the retired bomb squad member, some of the retired agents, retired prosecutors who just were willing to open up and tell the tell me these phenomenal stories about what their uh, their lives were like and and the kind of the role they played in all of this. So well, it's cool. And the FBI and, and police departments in that time were were sometimes at odds because it was believed by many that police were involved in organized crime. They were paid off. Yeah. Um, in the records, they talk. The, there were a lot of redactions, so you couldn't see the specific officers' names, but there were talk of not, certainly not that they thought all police were bad, but that there was concern about Blank, whose name was blanked out, that was on the payroll for Frank Balistrieri or uh, would get payouts to share uh, information from police reports. It was it was so serious that um, one of the agents uh, told me, and, and it was in the records too, that they actually kept it secret from police when they went to the Shorecrest and um, wrote, got a got a warrant and then broke in and placed microphones that they kept a, kept it secret from Milwaukee police because they didn't want anyone to tip off Frank Ballesteri that they were miking the place. Mm. It's so fascinating when you mentioned Shorecrest and we were talking about the apartment building before and there's, is it pitches to the bar? I mean, so many of these places are still around. It's almost in a way, as you read your story as well, not only are we learning about the mob in Milwaukee, but it's kind of like a historic journey through Milwaukee a lot of it detailed in the third ward, and wow, what a drastic difference the third ward is now compared to then. Yeah, I had been to Benel- Cafe Benelux several times before I realized it had been my cousin Augie's bar back when it was a very different different vibe back then. The windows were covered up, and there was a pool table and gambling happening, and certainly no like craft cocktails or a rooftop <laughs> patio back then, but um it is a just a different world, and I, this the stories I heard growing up about the third ward from my dad and his twelve older brothers and sisters. I, it's just I don't even know if they would recognize it now. I doubt it. No, I it just you know pitches kind of looks the same from what I can <laughs> yeah. gather. You know, driving near home. That one they but, recognize. Uh, but you know, all the names that come to mind here. You know, my grandfather worked at First Wisconsin Bank when my dad was a kid, and every Sunday they went to Fazio's for dinner. Right, Fazio's is a name. Alioto connected to the Balistreri's. That was the restaurant, the Balistreri restaurant. Like, there are so many familiar names with Italian heritage that are resurrected through this story. Everybody was kind of in it, but there was definitely a lot of fighting against one another to be the king of the organized crime ring in Milwaukee. Well, the interesting thing is that. Um in the records, they actually, I didn't quite realize how long Frank Balistrieri had been on the FBI's radar and had been being monitored by him. And there were records dating back to the 1950s where they had him in what they called the Top Hoodlum Program, where they were monitoring him. They had some records that um, I think as far back in the 1950s that he was believed to have bombed a Fazio's restaurant because he was upset that they were buying another restaurant. So he certainly... I think that sometimes people kind of romanticize uh, organized crime or the mafia and uh, talk about them as, you know, men of honor and um, almost like these Robin Hoods. And certainly from 
my impression and my experience growing up and the stories I heard and reading these things about, you know, blowing up somebody's restaurant just because they bought a restaurant you wanted doesn't seem very honorable. We were talking before the break um, about the actual bombing, the car bombing, and kind of what the car looked like and just the the, the damage that it did. But also, let, let's talk about your cousin Augie inside of that car, because authorities didn't even realize at first that there was someone there. So... What was that discovery like? It was gruesome. Yeah, um, it was a terrible scene. Um, they they described in the reports how they had to like prop open the doors um, with like two by fours just to even get in because the overhead door was so uh, so mangled. And uh, the some of the detectives I talked to, particularly the bomb squad detective, said that it was almost like pitch black in there because all the lights had been blasted out. It's like um, raining from, you know, the pipes that had burst and the sprinklers have gone off. So it's like flooding. So like dark, smoky, almost like you couldn't almost see anything. It's like a scene from a movie. Yeah. Yeah. It was terrible. Um, It's a terrible thing. Mary, before we let you go, you talked to Joe Pistone, whose life in discovering organized crime and trying to prevent it was played out in the movie Donnie Brasco. You talked to members of law enforcement, relatives. You talked to so many people. I'll ask you this final question. Who killed your cousin? So um, it's been widely believed, and the people I talked to who investigated Frank Balistrieri for a very long time um, said that they believe that um, Frank Balistrieri ordered my cousin's murder um, for several reasons, and that uh, they believe the bomb builder was a man named Nick Mo- Nick Montos, um, who was uh, the first person on the FBI's most wanted list twice. And um, he died of natural causes after, you know, he was 92, but he did uh, kind of get some karma in that he tried to rob a little old Jewish lady who had a shop and um, she apparently had a Louisville slugger oh, um, and beat him up pretty good. And there was a quote from the prosecutor, I believe it was something like, Hell hath no fury like a Holocaust survivor with a Louisville slugger. This incredible wow. story is in the front page of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. I urge you to read it. The headline is captivating. My cousin was killed by a car bomb in Milwaukee. A mob boss was the top suspect. Now I'm looking for answers. Incredible, incredible storytelling, Mary. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Mary.